Hi church, uh, if you don't know me, my name is Eric and I'm one of the pastors here. We're currently in our sermon series through 2 Corinthians uh, called Bold. So I have the privilege to preach the word of God to us today and let's get right into it. Uh, let me start with a question. I think about this. How much would you say our culture has influenced you in your thoughts and perspectives? How much would you say our culture has influenced you in your thoughts and perspectives? Uh, David Wells, author of Above All Earthly Powers, said this in a 2007 interview. I believe in our time, understanding our culture takes on an urgency because this culture is so intrusive and is so powerful in its capacity to shape our souls and our minds that if we're not, as it were, pushing back from an explicitly biblical Christian point of view, we're going to get swallowed up. It is more intense because we never escape from it. When you read a book, you may get very involved in the plot and in the characters, but at any moment you can close it. So there's always that distance between you and the book. You can stop and <clears throat> uh, you can stop and think and maybe have a conversation about what you've just read. But when you're in a movie, the movie never stops and you're enveloped in it and your emotions are engaged in a way that they're not quite engaged by a book. End quote. So would you agree with what Wells says here? You know, think for a moment. How has our present culture influenced you in ways that you may not even be aware of? Listen closely to some of our modern day slogans and mottos. And let's think about what, these, what the underlying thoughts and ideas are behind them. Adidas tells us that impossible is nothing. But then the thoughts behind that are self-sufficiency and self-actualization. Burger King tells us to have it your way. But the thoughts behind that are self-centeredness and self-indulgence. Oprah Winfrey tells us to live your own truth. But the thoughts behind that are individualism and relativism. Now, these are the ideas and thoughts that we're constantly bombarded with in our world. And unless we stop to think about uh, our own thoughts and the thoughts that are influencing us and to evaluate them from the lens of God's word or to close the world's book and to open God's book, so to speak, the movie of this world won't just turn itself off. And if we're not careful, the ideas and thoughts of this world will begin to shape our souls and our minds more than God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless we're pushing back from an explicitly biblical Christian world uh, point of view, we're going to get swallowed up. So that's what we're going to look at in today's passage. Uh, so the one thing for today is take every thought captive to obey Christ or else you will be taken captive by every thought. Take every thought captive to obey Christ, or else you will be taken captive by every thought. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. And just want to give a bit of context before jumping into today's passage. Uh, so the church in Corinth was first started by Paul and his companions. But then after he left, the church fell into all kinds of sin. They started following false teachers. They started rejecting Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ, even though he was the one that started this church. But then after several painful uh, letters and visits, Paul finally gets word that the church had, as a whole has repented and they're eager to see him again. So Paul writes this letter of 2 Corinthians to send ahead of him before he visits in person. Now, so far in this letter, Paul has defended his legitimacy as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's addressed the repentant majority in the church, asking them to fulfill 
their promise to contribute to the collection of funds for the impoverished Jerusalem church. And now, as we begin this third section, Paul specifically addresses the slanderous accusations that the false teachers have been saying about him. And, calling for the, and he's calling for the rebellious minority in this church to repent before he arrives in person. So that's where we are in today's passage. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away, I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect of walking, of, suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The, the, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is God's word. We're going to look at this passage in two parts. First, Paul's defensive approach against accusations in verses 1 to 2. And then second, Paul's offensive approach against thoughts in verses 3 to 6. So defense and offense. Uh, since Paul's defensive approach against accusations is going to come up again and again in this third major section, we're going to have opportunities to touch on that uh, more in subsequent sermons. So we're going to touch on that a little bit today, but we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at Paul's offensive approach against thoughts. So first, Paul's defensive approach against accusations. Verse 1 again says this, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. So we know from later in this passage that the, that parenthetical statement, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, is actually one of the accusations raised against the Apostle Paul. Now, have you ever only talked to someone over email or messaging? And after a while, you might think that you have a good sense of who they are. But then later on, when you finally meet them face to face, you find out that they weren't exactly what you expected them to be like. Maybe they sounded chattier and more confident over messaging. But then when uh, you met them face to face in person, they were actually very shy and quiet. So perhaps the accusation against Paul was that he was two-faced, inconsistent, too cowardly to be bold with the Corinthian church in person so he could only write boldly in letters. Maybe that was the accusation. But remember uh, that Paul had an existing relationship with the Corinthian church. It wasn't a blind relationship only over letters, but he started the Corinthian church in person by boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ into that pagan culture. And this wasn't just in Corinth, but as he went from city to city to city, he faced constant beatings and imprisonments for boldly proclaiming the gospel. So Paul had integrity. He was genuine, consistent, and he certainly was no coward. But by the world's standards, Paul wasn't a very impressive person. In an earlier letter to the Corinthian church, he described himself as being with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And that his speech and his message were not implausible words of wisdom. So by his own admission, Paul seemed like a weak, fearful, and ineloquent person. And so when the stronger, more confident, more eloquent false teachers came to the Corinthian church after Paul had left, the people stopped thinking much of Paul and began to question whether Paul was really an apostle at all. Now Paul was accused of being humble 
I know that might seem a little bit strange uh, today uh, for us. Uh, that doesn't seem like an accusation, but at the time, humility was not a positive trait to have. It was seen as a slavish attitude, only appropriate for the lowly and despised, but not appropriate for the noble and dignified. So the very attack against Paul was based on a worldly idea and thought of his time, that it is not praiseworthy to be humble. But Paul defends his, his humble demeanor by appealing to the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. In the only place in scripture that Jesus ever describes his own heart, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, or I am gentle and humble in heart. In other words, if the Corinthians have an issue with Paul's humble demeanor, then they really have a problem with Christ because Christ is gentle and humble in heart. When you think back on your interactions with others, have you ever had any of these thoughts come to mind? You know, why are you walking so slowly? Can you speed it up a bit? Why do I need to keep repeating this to you? How many times have I said this to you? Or why is this so difficult for you? It's really not that hard. You know, think for a moment. What are the thoughts behind those thoughts? Efficiency, competency, self-sufficiency. You know, this world praises efficiency, competency, self-sufficiency more than it praises meekness, gentleness, and humility. Of course, we may say we value those things, but when push comes to shove, when we examine our own thoughts, we see what really drives us. God and his word, or ourselves and this world. You know, going back to the passage, the question still stands. If Paul was humble in person, why was he so bold in his letters? Paul explains in verse 2, uh, which says this, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So Paul writes boldly to the Corinthians in his letters so that he won't have to be bold in person with them. He begs them to repent in his letters so that he will not need to deal severely with them when he arrives in person. You know, Paul is not cowardly, but he is compassionate. Here, Paul expects that he'll need to show boldness to some of his accusers when he arrives. But he's writing to them ahead of time, warning them, pleading with them to repent before he gets there so that he will not have to execute the painful consequences that unrepentant sin warrants. So first, Paul's defensive approach against accusations. And then second, Paul's offensive approach against thoughts. Verses 3 to 5 say this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You know, here Paul moves from defense to offense. He's no longer defending against accusations, but he's now describing his offensive approach. Not against the false teachers, but against arguments, opinions, and thoughts. He goes to war against thoughts. And not so much thoughts against him, Paul, but thoughts against the knowledge of God. You know, this puts Paul's defense of his apostleship in perspective. Paul is only concerned about defending himself in as much as it means defending true knowledge of God. Because true knowledge of God was the most important part. The main problem with these false teachers is not that they're more eloquent than Paul. Paul could care less about their eloquence. But the main problem is that they're teaching a different gospel, 
a different Jesus and are leading the thoughts of the Corinthian church away from the sincere, pure devotion to Christ. So it's not so much Paul against the false teachers, but it's more fundamentally the true gospel against false gospels, the true Jesus against another different Jesus, true knowledge of God against false arguments, opinions, and thoughts. When Paul says that we are not waging war according to the flesh, he's referring to what has become commonly referred to as spiritual warfare or spiritual battle. Now, what comes to mind when you hear that, when you hear the words spiritual warfare? Now, perhaps we think of supernatural phenomenon like God sending the ten plagues uh, against Egypt and the miraculous deliverance of the Israelites through the Red Sea. Or perhaps we think of overt, blatant demonic activity like demonic possession, leading people to cause physical harm to themselves uh, and other people. Now, I'm not denying those aspects, but here Paul describes spiritual warfare primarily as a war against thoughts. You know, Satan didn't possess Adam and Eve into sinning, but he lured them into sin with a thought. Before there were consequences of pain and death, before there was the first sin of disobedience, there was a thought, a lie about God, that God is withholding something good from them, that there, that there won't be consequences for sin, that they should have the right themselves to decide apart from God what is good or evil, right or wrong. You know, perhaps we think eating a piece of fruit is a neutral act. But that act was driven by sinful rebellion against God. And that sinful rebellion was driven by the thought, the lie that God is not good. You know, sin is always driven by unbelief. You know, God tells us the truth in his word, but instead of taking and believing God at his word, we disbelieve him and we entertain other thoughts that lead us away from him. You know, again, it's not always so obvious. You may think that you're just making money for your family, that it's a neutral act, that there's nothing wrong with it. And that might be the case. But what might be the thought behind the thought? Perhaps you believe that money will provide fulfillment and satisfaction for your family more than anything else, more than even God himself. And so, like Adam, you exchange the truth about God for a lie and end up worshiping and serving a created thing rather than the creator. A good thing is no longer a good thing if it becomes an ultimate thing. So spiritual warfare is primarily about the battle of thoughts. We will either take every thought captive to obey Christ or we will be taken captive by every thought. Uh, we'll look at a few examples of what that might look like, starting with ourselves and then moving outward to one another uh, uh, in the church and then further out to others outside the church. So first, uh, personally, we need to be able to identify thoughts that are against the knowledge of God. But again, the problem is that it's not always so obvious. Satan is the father of lies and the deceiver of the whole world, but he disguises himself as an angel of light. In other words, Satan is very good at making lies seem good and plausible. And one of the most dangerous lies to believe is a false gospel. It's so destructive because you think you're believing in the true gospel, but it's actually counterfeit. In the past, we've talked about counterfeits like the therapeutic gospel and the prosperity gospel. But one false gospel that is becoming more popular these days is what one person has called the new prosperity gospel. 
You know, it's not so blatant as the old health and wealth prosperity gospel, that if you believe enough and you give enough, then God will make you healthy and wealthy. No, it's, it's, it's actually much more subtle than that. The new prosperity gospel says that God's purpose in life is your fulfillment in terms of the things of this world to help you advance and achieve your dreams and reach your ultimate potential. It's about being the best version of yourself. But the problem is that the best version of yourself isn't defined by walking in the newness of life in Christ or by the fruit of the Spirit, but it's defined by the thoughts and values of this world rather than by God's Word. It suggests that the desires you had before you were saved should be the same desires you have after you're saved. You still want platform, influence, achievement, advancement, fame, self-actualization, self-importance, self-fulfillment. The thought of not maximizing your gifts and potential, the thought of not achieving your dreams is unthinkable because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, the new prosperity gospel takes verses out of context to say what we want to hear and it skips passages that talk about the things that we don't want to hear. It doesn't talk about sin, repentance, or judgment, but prefers to use the language of brokenness and how God just wants to take our brokenness in some vague way. You know, church is where you go to consume and experience. It's where you go to get inspired, but it's also largely seen as optional. You go every now and then to fill up your tank, but you don't see church as the family of God that you're saved into, that you sacrifice for, that you open up to, that you live life closely with, to grow together in your followership of Christ. You know, why would you do that? That would only distract you from achieving your dreams that God wants to help you achieve. You know, the entire system of belief in this new prosperity gospel is built around a God that is for your dreams and your ambitions. But the truth is that God is first and foremost for his own glory. And the story of God redeeming a people whom he loves to himself is not primarily about you. It includes you, but it's not about you. But it's about God and his glory. He is the only one worthy of that kind of praise and adoration and living our whole lives for. You know, John the Baptist at the peak of his ministry, when he had platform, influence, fame, crowds coming to him, when he realizes that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know, the new prosperity gospel has no place for that. It has no problem saying Jesus must increase, but we want to increase with him. To decrease as we follow Christ is unthinkable. And all this leads to an eventual faith crisis because people have been ascribing promises to God that he never made. You thought that you'd be doing your dream job, achieving your dream goals, living your dream, in your dream city with your dream family. But then what happens when you've been supposedly following Christ for a long while, but you're still at the same job, in the same house, in the same city, doing the same thing, living a very ordinary life by this world's standards. You know, what do you do with that? The new prosperity gospel has no theology of daily faithfulness and seeing how God uses daily faithfulness for our own good and for his own glory. There's no eternal perspective 
but it's a Christianized, you only live once mentality where you need to maximize your life now because functionally, that's all there really is and all you're really thinking about. There's no theology of suffering and sanctification. But if any suffering takes place, it's not because God is using those trials to make you more like Jesus. It's not to mature you in your faith. It's not to help you to be more dependent on Him. Instead, it's only happening to you so that God can set you up for a comeback. Your setback is for your comeback, they might say. And what's so insidious about this new, new prosperity gospel is that it's actually not completely false. There's an element of truth to it. But that's the problem. It's incomplete. And as one person said, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes a complete untruth, a lie. Now, why am I spending so much time talking about the new prosperity gospel? Because it's becoming more and more prevalent. And if we're not careful without realizing it, we'll also begin to find our own thoughts are being taken captive by it rather than recognizing it as counterfeit and taking it captive to obey Christ in the, in the true gospel. You know, when you examine your, your thoughts, your heart, your, your patterns of behavior, your social media, is your life about advancing yourself or about living for God? Is it about self-actualizing yourself or about bringing God glory? Is it about having more and making more out of your life in this, in this earthly life and living it by worldly standards? Are you evaluating your life by worldly standards and the quality of it, the meaning of it? You know, if that's the case, then we need to look again at how we are wretched sinners before a holy God. And yet, how while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need to soak in again every spiritual blessing we have in Christ now and forever so that we don't feel the need to try to squeeze out every worldly blessing in this temporal life. We have everything now and forever in Christ. Live your life fully for Jesus and it will be no wasted life. May we be able to say with the Apostle Paul and all the saints, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you want to be able to spot a counterfeit, you need to know the real thing really well. Of course, there's no replacement for regularly being in God's Word. But reading and discussing good books with others is also very helpful. Now, one resource that we have available for free to anyone in our church is a book very explicitly titled, What is the Gospel? Uh, by Greg Gilbert. It comes with a study guide uh, that we also have available for free. So just talk to any of the leaders or anyone on resources team and they'll make sure to get that to you. And I'd, I'd encourage you to not just read this book uh, and go through the study guide by, by yourself, but to do it with someone else in our church so that you can help each other to better understand and apply the gospel in your own lives. And even if you're just a little fuzzy on the gospel, if you have trouble cl clearly articulating the gospel in less than a minute, please don't try to hide that. But be open about that and ask someone to read and discuss what is the gospel with you. It's of eternal consequence that we get the gospel right. So first, personally, 
And second, let's see what the spiritual battle of thoughts might look like with one another. You know, in our relationships with one another in our church, we want to be intentional about helping one another understand and apply the gospel in our lives. That means we need to help one another identify thoughts that are not in accord with the true gospel. And these may not just uh, these might not just be passing thoughts here and there, but they might actually be strongholds in a person's life using the language from this passage, meaning that they've built much of their lives around this thought and they've defended it against anyone who has tried to tell them differently. Strongholds don't come down easily. But the problem is that we don't often know that these strongholds exist in us unless someone helps us to uncover it, to see it. Primarily, it's the Holy Spirit who exposes us and convicts us uh, as we are in God's Word. But God often uses our fellow brothers and sisters around us to help point these out to us so that we can take them captive to obey Christ. And one of the best ways that you can do that for one another is to listen well and to ask good questions. Paul Tripp, author of Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, suggests different things to listen for and different questions to ask. We should listen for issues where the person responds in anger or defensiveness. You know, they might feel accused by a question that was actually open-ended. It might have required them to share uh, personally, but it didn't attach any blame. So if the person gets upset and defensive by certain issues that you bring up, that may be a potential stronghold in that person's life. We should listen for times when the person is closed and self-protective. And this might be more subtle. They might not say, I don't want to talk about that, but it might be more subtle than that. It's interesting how someone can share a story about themselves and yet omit, not mention what they themselves were thinking, wanting, and doing in their story, in their story. So listen for times when the person omits themselves from the story that they're sharing about themselves. Uh, we should also listen for instances where, uh, when the person places blame for their own behavior on someone else. This is when the person cannot separate their own sinful actions and attitudes from the sins of others. Rather, all their sins are excused and hidden behind the sins of others. They cannot make that separation. It's always linked to this other person's sin against them. Also, listen for occasions when the person has clearly erected a logical defense of their viewpoint and actions. This is when the person already comes in convinced that they are right. They're coming to you, think, uh, maybe asking for counsel, but they don't really want to hear it. They come in ready to reference past experiences, field experts, scripture passages to support their viewpoint. They come in ready to do battle with you rather than coming in open uh, and humbly admitting that they might possibly be wrong. So listen well and then ask good questions. Ask what was going on in that situation? You know, tell me more. You know, this part still a little, is a little bit fuzzy. Tell me more. Help clarify what, what went on. So what was going on in that situation? What were you thinking and feeling as it was going on? What did you do in response? What did you want? Or what were you seeking to accomplish by what you did? And then what was the result? You know, these are questions that I ask myself all the time and they're, they're, they really pry at you, you know. They don't allow you just to stay at surface, safe level behind all the barriers. You know, if you're familiar with the How People Change framework, these questions are very similar. It doesn't have to be these exact questions, but ask questions that peel back the layers to better understand what was going on in the mind and heart of this person in this particular situation. 
know, why did they do what they did? How did they interpret the situation? Were the emotions they felt appropriate for that situation? Uh, in that moment, what did they believe about God, themselves, and that other person? What did they want out of the situation? And then how was what they desired threatened? You know, in any given moment, we're all driven by something. We're all captivated by something. Either the ideas and thoughts of this world or God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So all this is to help the other person to see for themselves what thoughts might be taking them captive, what strongholds they might have erected for themselves, and help them to take those thoughts captive to obey Christ. So it's important that we always point one another back to Christ and his gospel, not just our own experiences, not just some other field experts and some other things that we've heard, but we always point one another back to Christ and his gospel, God and his word. And of course, this should be mutual. Don't just hide behind listening well and asking good questions either, but you should be willing to open up yourself to other people in this church as well so that together we might intentionally help one, one another to better follow Christ. So first, personally, second, with one another, and now third, let's see what the spiritual battle of thoughts might look like with others. In our relationships with others outside the church, those who don't know Christ yet, we want to be intentional about helping them to understand and apply the gospel too. Now, why would we do that? Why would we engage on this kind of thought level about faith issues? Because if we really believe that the God who created us will hold us accountable for our sins and that there will be eternal consequences, then the most loving thing to do for the people around us who don't know Christ yet is to share that Jesus Christ has, be, has come to be King and Savior over our lives if we would only repent of our sins, believe in Him, and follow Him. Still, we ought to do the most loving thing in the most loving way. And here, again, I'd encourage us to listen well and ask good questions in the context of genuine friendship. You know, friends have conversations where they open up about their lives to one another. In fact, I'd say that's a core element of friendship. If you don't open up to your friends, then you may have acquaintances and companions, but I'm not sure if they can really be categorized as friends, at least not the way that I see the Bible understand friendship. So if you're having conversations with your non-Christian friends, then listen well and ask good questions. Rebecca Pippert, author of Stay Salt, suggests uh, asking three kinds of questions. One is ask interest questions. You know, what are their interests and why do these things bring them, bring them such joy? You know, are they interested in politics, sports, music, work? Do they enjoy gardening, spending time with their family, video games? Do they prefer being indoors? or going outdoors? Do they have a favorite vacation spot? You know, people are actually very interesting if we just take the time to ask and are genuinely interesting, interested. You know, even though they might not feel like they're interesting, uh, as someone who's different than they are, uh, I find uh, many people as they share their stories, they're, they're, it's really unique and very interesting to hear. Everyone has a story, a unique story, and asking sincere questions about what they enjoy and why that is, and then listening well gives us the privilege of hearing their story. And if they're friends, wouldn't you want to do that? Don't you want to know your friends on a deeper level than just shared activity? Who are they? What are they like? What are their preferences? 
So first, ask interest questions. Next, ask issue or opinion questions. What are their opinions, views, beliefs about a particular topic? You know, this can really be about anything. What do they think about a particular sports team, racial injustice, their own families, their work, the meaning of life? What do they think about how different governments are handling the COVID-19 situation? What do they think about people being able to disagree and yet still be friends? You know, you can learn a lot about a person as they share about their passions and beliefs. And then a third kind of question is ask a God question. You know, these are questions that get them to engage with their own worldview and consider what difference God would make to this topic. Rebecca Pippert, again, she shares about a conversation between Joe, a Christian and a surgeon, and his colleague Sam, who wasn't a believer. So Joe and Sam, they first started chatting about what drew them uh, uh, to medicine, the study medicine in the first place. And then they shared their various views on issues being discussed in the medical community. But then Joe raised an interesting issues question. He said, you know, I don't know about you, but I found that the most difficult aspect of our work as surgeons is dealing with patients who are dying. Have you found a way to give hope to your patients who are terminal? You know, Sam agreed that by far that was the hardest thing for him to do as well. And then he asked Joe, he turned around and asked him the same question. Have you found anything helpful? And that led Joe to share about God. He said, you know, after seeing some patients die, I realized what a difference faith seemed to make in how some patients handled death. So I began asking myself, what if this life isn't the only life and there's another life that awaits us? What difference would it make to know that there is a God who can offer hope in the most dire of circumstances? Sam then asked, so what did you discover? And then Joe began to share his spiritual journey of how he eventually became a Christian. You know, of course, conversations don't always flow that smoothly, but as we genuinely love and are genuinely interested and are willing not to, to take off some of the filters and stop hiding our, our followership of Christ, when we're willing to engage with our non-Christian friends and open up about our lives to one another, then we'll continue to also be able to engage and challenge one another about our thoughts. That's actually all part of what makes a healthy friendship. There may be times, though, where it might be helpful to push the logic of some of our friends' views, if it's appropriate. You know, not to debate them or to try to prove them wrong, but to lovingly help them think about whether they really believe what they say they believe. You know, for example, if they believe that we're all cosmic accidents, and that we're nothing more than physical matter without souls. That morality, love, and beauty are just chemical reactions in our brains and the result of social cultural constructs uh, to live at peace with one another. If they really believe that, then what's their foundation for human rights, for loving a spouse, for grieving the loss of a child, for right and wrong, for meaning in life? You know, what's the basis for those other beliefs that they hold? For the Christian who believes that we are all made in the image of God, that God delights in his good creation, that God alone defines what is right and wrong, that we love because God first loved us, that God alone as our creator gives meaning and purpose to what he's created, then we have a firm foundation for the other beliefs that we hold as well. What we think in our head fits with what we know in our hearts. But remember, we ought to do the most loving thing in the most loving way. You know, we destroy strongholds, arguments, opinions, and thoughts, but we never destroy people. We're not focused on winning arguments, but winning 
people, our friends. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves and to give a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. Or as Paul wrote in verse 1, we are to entreat our non-Christian friends by the meekness and gentleness of Christ to turn away from thoughts against the knowledge of God and to turn towards true knowledge of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what the spiritual battle of thoughts might look like personally with one another in the church and with others outside the church. And Paul concludes this passage with verse 6, which says this, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So here, it's clear that Paul is talking to Christians inside the church. He's not talking to non-Christians outside the church. Uh, the whole context here is writing to the Corinthian church. And Paul is specifically talking about the final act of church discipline, where a member of the church is put outside the church for serious outward unrepentant sin. That means that the church publicly revokes their affirmation of them as followers of Christ, and they are no longer to be recognized officially as members of this church. We know that this is what Paul is talking about because of something he wrote earlier in the same letter in the context of church discipline in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-9. through It says this, For such a one, uh, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So Paul uses the same language and concepts of punishment by the majority and obedience in everything. The Corinthian church had disciplined an unrepentant member of the church uh, and put, them out, put that person outside of the church. But after he repented, Paul now called the church to welcome him back into the church, restore him. And Paul says that the church's willingness to practice church discipline evidences their obedience to Christ and his gospel. So going back to verse 6 in our passage here, Paul wants the Corinthian church to be ready alongside him to discipline the false teachers and their followers out of the church if they continue to remain unrepentant. Remember, this is the final act of church discipline. In Matthew chapter 18, we see the process more clearly laid out. You know, one person first confronts the person in sin. If that person doesn't listen, then you go along with two or three other people to confront him together of his sin. If he still doesn't listen, then you tell it to the whole church. If, the, if he doesn't listen to the whole church and is not repentant, uh, when the church confronts him, then the church has the responsibility of removing him from membership. And it actually seems like Paul has followed this process. You know, remember that Paul has been struggling with the Corinthian church over the span of years, where he visited them in person and wrote letters to them. You know, some have repented, but some have not. So now, after done everything that he can possibly do to lovingly confront and plead with them to repent of their sin, if they still choose to remain hardened and unrepentant in their sin, then out of love, the church must be willing to remove them from the church, to protect God's honor and his gospel witness, to protect the body of Christ who might be led astray, and hopefully to restore the person if he repents of his sin eventually. You know, the church is responsible to discipline both, both false teaching and false living that does not accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is vital because the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So if the church loses the gospel, it's lost everything. It's no longer a true church, even though they might gather every Sunday. You lose the gospel, you're not a church anymore. And how quickly a church can lose the gospel if we're not careful. It's not long after the gospel is assumed that the gospel is then confused and then it's finally 
lost. That's why the church must be vigilant to understand, believe, uphold, protect, preach, share, and show the gospel of Jesus Christ and to take every thought captive to obey Christ so that we will not be taken captive by every thought. The gospel is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's wonderfully amazing news. We dare not confuse it. We dare not mix it. We dare not lose it. And it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is of eternal consequence that the church gets the gospel right. So once again, the one thing is take every thought captive to obey Christ or else you will be taken captive by every thought. Take every thought captive to obey Christ or else you will be taken captive by every thought. Here's the life application. First, read through a Bible reading plan. You know, we take in so many other thoughts throughout the day that are contrary to Christ and his gospel. So if we don't want to be conformed to this world, there's really no shortcut to having our minds renewed than to regularly take in God's word. Second, memorize scripture. When you find yourself tempted to believe a lie, you don't want to be fighting that by saying, Pastor Eric said this. No, you want to be able to say, God's word says this. There's so much more weight to God's word than anyone else's word. So I definitely commend scripture memorization to you. Third, read and discuss What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert and its study guide with others. Again, these are great free resources that we have available to anybody in our church. Ask the leaders, ask uh, someone on resources team and we'll get that uh, to you. And then fourth, explain the gospel in less than a minute. You know, this is actually something that we ask every membership candidate to do during their membership interview. You know, if our whole lives, now and forever, rest in this gospel message, this good news of Jesus Christ, then we should know it better than we know anything else. May we be a church that is so saturated with the gospel that we see all of life through that lens so that we can spot counterfeits and can take those thoughts captive to obey Christ and so that we're always ready to share to anyone who asks us for the hope that we have. Let's take some time now to respond to God's word.